Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I am your host, Joshua David Stein. Today we are going to explore why I, your host, am so broke all the time. But generally we're going to speak about the cost of raising a kid. Did you know it costs $233,610 to bring a child from infancy to the age of 17 per kid? That's $30,000 more than it cost in 1960 when the USDA first started tracking those numbers. That's a lot of money. That's money that I don't have. I mean, I'm a fairly successful writer. I have a podcast, which you're listening to. But still, that's $14,000 a year for one kid. I have two kids. That's $28,000 a year. Okay, we're going to talk to two people um, who have a lot of expertise about money. One is Jaquette Timmons, who is my financial coach, although she calls herself a financial behavioralist. And the other is a brilliant, I think, uh, theorist and scholar and author, Richard Reeves of the Brookings Institute, who wrote a book called Dream Hoarders, How the American Upper Middle Class, which is me, is leaving everyone else in the dust, why that is a problem and what to do about it. I also want to introduce and acknowledge the presence of a new soul in the studio, and that is Postel Pringle, who is my co-host. Postel takes a seat once occupied by Jason Gay. Now, Postel is very different than Jason Gay, and I'll let him introduce himself a little later in the program. Postel is a artist and a writer and a actor, and he has kids of his own. And I think we have good energy. You tell me. Anyway, let's get into the program. Time is money. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm here with Poss. Hi, how are you doing? This is Poss still Pringle. He is my co-host. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Okay, Richard, your book is called Dream Hoarders, How the American Upper Middle Class is Leaving Everyone Else in the Dust, Why That is a Problem, and What to Do About It. Um, the reason why we're talking to you, other than you're interesting and you have a very mellifluous voice, is... Yeah, quite <laughs> actually mellifluous, if, if I may. I yeah, say, you know, jump I in, just, yeah. I, I, I just needed a, a longer... T- I just you know, really wanted a long title. I, you know, one of my life ambitions <laughs> to have one of those really, really long titles. And in fact, the story is I sent it on an email to the publishers and just said, it's, look, this is basically what the book's about. And they went, yeah, that's great. Next thing I know, it's on the front of the book. I thought, I didn't really mean that as the subtitle, but there you go. The rest is history. Well, I kind of feel like you decided to do a subtitle that way. First of all, it kind of reminded me of Shakespeare a little bit. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's like he has a title and he, you know, and, or what you will, like that kind of thing. But, and then I'm going to explain the joke in the subtitle. Right, exactly. However, I will say you must have known that you were going to do such a lovely job with the um, with the, uh, audio with the, the audio book because you actually have a very lovely speaking voice. So you gave yourself wow. more words with which to, like, bless us with your beautiful tenor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very, very kind of you. Also, the sto- story there is, you know, I, I had to audition for the part. Of you, reading did? My own book. you had to audition for your own book? I did. I said, well, they said, we're going to do a book. And I said, well, fine, I'll read it. And I went, well, uh, uh, you have to do an audition. Yeah. I said, what? I have to audition for the part of myself? It was between you, <laughs> what? Patrick Stewart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who was your competition? I know. And I said, what are you going to I said, what are you going to do if I don't get the, get the gig? And they said, we'll find some out-of-work British actor. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. (laughs) Um, Well, the reason, one of the many, many reasons you're on the show 
is because this whole episode is um, kind of occasioned by a uh, financial crisis, personal financial crisis I'm going through. Hmm. Um, and a constant financial crisis that I'm going through. Yeah, I guess mine's constant, <laughs> yeah. too. I, I guess it's like every uh, month that rent is due. Right. It's a crisis. <laughs> I think at some point, if it's a constant financial crisis, it's just called poverty. Uh, oh yes, but see it's that's not a thing. Anymore. But that's the kind of the thing. I mean, that's a whole point, right? Like, um, yeah. we'll get into your book, but like, I am, I think, upper middle class. You you define as a household income of over one hundred twelve thousand dollars a year, right? Well, that was then. I mean, you can update it now if you want. It's probably it's it's probably close to one hundred forty, hundred fifty now, actually. So. Oh, okay. Oh, do I make it? No, I don't make it. I well, actually, there, there's some do years. I do actually have a question relating to that, but I'll let you continue. Oh yeah, and anyway. it also depends. It also depends how many people are in the household, and you know, it could get really boring really fast. So. Well, basically, I, yeah, I I should be in the comfort like the financially comfortable zone, and yet I'm living paycheck to paycheck. You know, when the government shutdown happened and that stat came out that like eighty, I think eighty percent. 70 or 80% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Mm, yeah. That was mm-hmm. a crazy wake-up call, and it made me realize that's what that's also what I'm doing. Yeah. And I'm under a lot of financial pressure, even though I make a fair amount. I think I hit that 140 threshold, but I have child support, which I pay, mm-hmm. um, and I have my own rent, and I have credit card debt, and I'm a freelancer, so I have a ton of unpaid taxes, you know, like every April, my, my accountant's like, Oh, you owe like 20 grand to the IRS. I'm like, great. I have no money. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, that's wonderful. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, it yeah, means yeah, exactly. nothing to me cause I'm never going to pay it. Um, I mean, if the IRS is listening, I will pay it eventually on installments. But, um, so it's very easy <laughs> for me to kind of get sucked into the woe is me. I'm poor. Yeah. <laughs> like, mentality when in point of fact i am very privileged and fall under the upper middle class uh, umbrella that you're right. talking about um so yeah only, only probably maybe only just i would say but yeah i mean i, I can't tell obviously from without knowing lots of lots more about you but that is the kind of bottom end you know the middle of that uh upper middle class group is like two hundred thousand, comfortably into two hundred thousand. so if you want to put yourself in the middle of that group yeah. Always, if you take the kind of line, you're going to get that's where the case is going to feel like, really, are you upper middle class if you're just on the line? But that's true of any line. Right. Um, the people right next to it are the ones that it's hardest to kind of justify. But, um, but I hear what you're saying about paycheck to paycheck, and I think that's a really important issue because um, the, that's really a question of how much is coming in and how much is going out. Yeah. I'm not going to suggest this is true of you, but there was this piece that I think ran on Bloomberg a couple of years ago about a couple of making $500,000 a year in New York. And then they broke down their expenditures, and they were li- and they proved quite convincingly they were living paycheck to paycheck, wow. which they were, because by the time they'd paid for their massive mortgage on their house, their apartment in Manhattan, the mortgage on their house out um, somewhere on the shore, out the kids' private school fees, that the car payments on two German uh, expensive German automobiles, their you know their skiing trip, wherever it is, they were absolutely it was absolutely true, but you, your heart might not bleed for those people as much as it would for somebody in different circumstances. So in a sense, the paycheck to paycheck thing doesn't tell me all that much until right. I know, A, how big is the paycheck, and B, how much of that is because you've made a whole series of life choices yeah. about right. how where you live, how expensive it is, that make your life expensive. Right? <laughs> yeah. that's, you that's, mean that's there's personal you. responsibility here? I <laughs> hate it. That's no. enough, Richard. Yeah, come on, man. Now, I was going to say, <laughs> uh, how much, uh, like, how much, 
how much adjustment do you have to make for the actual cost of living in each city with that yeah. number? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, you can uh, make a lot, and it makes it, it does make a big difference, right? Um, although, um, you know, when I, I remember when I kind of brought the book out, let's say it's like let's say it's 115 to get into that top quintile nationally. Mm-hmm. In in New York, it was more like 150, right? So it's like so it's quite a bit higher, but it's not 300. Yeah. It doesn't suddenly. It doesn't. So you you and and there are various ways you can adjust for the cost of living locally. So you might take your income on a national level and adjust the local cost of living. And the truth is that it does make quite a big difference, right? So, a uh, hundred thousand dollars a year income is quite a lot in Detroit. It's not very much in New York City, by comparison to everyone else around you, and by comparison to the cost of living in those. Or rather, it puts you in a different place in the income distribution. So that's all true. But it doesn't change the fact that people still systematically rank themselves as much poorer than they really are um, and kind of ascribe and, and put themselves into this group of the kind of struggling middle class when they're really, by any reasonable measure, even for their city, towards the top income distribution. You are um, talking about me. That yeah, is how I... Might I be. Yeah, that's how <laughs> yeah. I think of myself. But the reason... Yeah. But, but, you know, as it pertains to the book, right, I just want to, like, preemptively check myself before I fall into that trap to talk a little bit about uh, some of the trends or the ways of passing on intergenerational social and economic inequality that I would probably say I'm guilty of, not only on the receiving end of being where I am, but of what I'm going to pass on to my kids. So this whole episode doesn't just turn into like, here's JDS, upper middle class guy, bemoaning his lack of savings you know like i think one of the you know in your book you lay out basically three big ways in which the top 20 percent of the american uh population is peeling away leaving in the dust as per the subtitle Mm -hmm. the bottom uh 80 percent of earners through um what is it exclusionary zoning exclusionary zoning um um entitlements for um i guess i should say legacy uh, legacy yes is legacy legacy. and then also with does the internship fall is that a different category or does that fall underneath the opportunity it's one of of these opportunity hoarding mechanisms i mean they're not of course the only or indeed the main ways that inequality gets passed on um the main ways inequality gets passed on are through education um, family stability, neighborhood stability, etc. And really, there's a very, very big story about education. You know, the relationship between your parents' income and your chances of going to and through college, and especially to or through a, a decent college, are just extraordinary, right? It's, uh, you can predict that intergenerational, and, and that really drives massive intergenerational mobility. And that's a huge policy problem, but, it, but it's hard to describe that as hoarding. You know, if your kids get to go to a better better college because they come from a reasonably affluent background and therefore went to a better K-12 school and had parents that were attentive to their education, maybe read to them, went to teacher, parent, parent-teacher parent nights or whatever they're called, um, and do better, well, where's the problem in that? And the answer is there isn't a problem in that privately. But the opportunity hoarding thing is really getting it kind of where we're starting to rig the system in our favor. That's a bit different. That's not just helping your kids to do better in a fair society kind of rigging it so it's an unfair society. And, those, and three of those are the ones that, that, that you kind of mentioned were just sewing up internships for yourself, your own kids, or doing the same for your neighbors or friends' kids, playing the legacy card in college admissions, which probably isn't so much of a top 20% issue, frankly. It's more of a like top 5 maybe 10% issue. Yeah. You're getting more towards the top, because those are the elite schools. Um, 
Uh, and so I think more closer you get to the top, more legacy preferences are there. But internships, you know, the chance to intern, intern at Brookings or, uh, you know, for a media company or on a podcast or whatever, those are those are kind of really big labor market opportunities and half of them are unpaid and probably about the same number aren't really handed out very fairly. They tend to be done on the basis of who you know. And as soon as you start giving people opportunities based on who they know or who their parents know, you're introducing, I think, some intrinsic unfairness in the system. And so those are the kinds of hoarding mechanisms. The housing one is just a huge, I mean, that's a whole episode in and of itself. You know, the U.S. housing market is very badly rigged in our favor, in favor of those of us like myself who are way up the income distribution living in a zoned single-family neighborhood in Bethesda, Chevy Chase, Maryland. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, um, the cost of land just becomes incredibly high, and then we wonder why people aren't moving as much and why we've got growing economic inequality, and it's partly because we've rigged the housing market in our favor. Well, it's just interesting to me that you're making a distinction between the overall systemic inequality. Um, like, I think you could probably, I don't know if you could make the connection between the lack of funding for public education mm-hmm. and which seems very systemic. And it's not about, ho- I mean, it, I don't know. To me, that also seems about hoarding. Like, if there are, if um, the wealthy are, voting in politicians or however you want to use that mechanism in order to decrease their tax burden so they, they're not funding public education, that's a systemic inequality that's intergenerational. Apart from, on the margins of that, um, legacy, you know, legacy admissions. Like, legacy admissions yep. is just the sort of <laughs> softer blossom on a, on a poison tree. Yeah, it's a little bit of a lottery, yeah. Yeah, or rather, I mean, I would the analogy that I think I it's, it's more like rubbing salt in the wounds. Right. It, yeah. It, it's like you've already got these systemic inequalities that mean that the kids of the affluent and well-educated are way, way, way more likely to get into these elite universities anyway. Right. They have this massive head start anyway, and then you give them this additional advantage. So I think it's more of a rubbing salt in the wounds thing. And I agree that those are sort of relatively some of these certainly legacies. I think to some extent internships are are m- marginal in their kind of aggregate effect. It doesn't mean that they're right. That's one of the things I addressed in the book, right? Just because something may not be having this huge overall effect doesn't mean that it isn't wrong. <laughs> That's a very bad way to think about morality, it seems to me. You know, if, only, if you only murder someone occasionally, is that okay? No. Right. Murder, wrong. Cheating, wrong. Cheating's always wrong, whether you do it once or a hundred times or whether everyone's doing it or not. Um, but the systemic thing, I think, is right. And the question then becomes, at what point is the decision to sort of vote for a particular you know, institutional arrangement in education, so is that a form of hoarding? And I think that's a really hard line to draw. I try to draw it. Nope, it and is. I try, to draw, I try to draw it in a way that sort of <laughs> distinguishes between like individual responsibility, but it's very, very hard. You know, I do say that you know, if you vote the wrong way on certain things, integrated schools and so on, then you know, that probably drifts into, into hoarding. But on the other hand, it's quite... It's it can be quite hard to change the system within which uh, within which you kind of currently are. So I'm trying to get at that difference between the individual level and the systemic one. But you're right. I mean, just take higher education, the funding of public education generally. But um, yeah, it's almost like legacy no. legacy admissions wouldn't be such a, a, a such a big deal if generally there was affordable education for all, right? That it's kind of like yeah, it, if the stakes were a bit lower. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably right. I mean, it wouldn't make it right. It would still be wrong. It would mean that the stakes would be a bit lower. And yeah. so what you're seeing is this growing divide in the funding that is available to private uh, institutions and public institutions. That's true at the K-12 um, 
level, and it's definitely true, and it's true at the post-secondary level. Um, and so the, the, as you say, if, if the alternative was, well, I didn't get into that elite, but I go into this great, well-funded public, then it has less say. As we're, we're constantly starving the public of public funds, it means that that's, that choice gets stuck. And I always you know, remind people that of the kids from the bottom 80% that go to college, from families in the bottom 80%, the modal institution is community college. So the institution they're most likely to go to from the bottom 80%, it's true for the bottom middle 60% actually, is community college. And the median American student goes to a college less than 20 miles from where they grew up. The median. Okay. So that's the world as lived by middle class Americans, right? That, by, that, that's the, the world as most people know it. That is not the world that we know. It's not the world that we know. But it's not the world that upper middle class people know, yeah. right? The idea that's going to be within 20 mile radius and that community college is a modal institution. That is absolutely not the world we live in. And that divide. Are you saying um, modal? Modal, yeah. That's a cool word. Modal. That is a cool word. Think, like, like as connected to, to mode. Like, or like mode, that band, yeah. the holy that modal just, rounders. Look, it's just band? a really, really annoying think tank way of saying the most common. Modal. <laughs> yeah, okay. Like, it's I, not the same like, as, usually, no, it's like, not the same as mode. Like, I modally put, like, oat milk in my Cortado, but sometimes I put whole milk. Okay, yeah. I, mo- I modally, like, mix in some um, some Greek uh, yogurt into my oatmeal, yeah. but, yeah. Yeah, okay. With fine. some cut-up figs. I'm not going to live down the modal comment anytime soon. <laughs> so, but actually, actually getting getting to, uh, let's get real for a minute. Um, I uh, Going back a little bit on what you just said, um, I think about, like, so much of what you said is... Uh, spoken about how systemically these things are hard for us uh, to combat and the, the, the way that we need to combat them is systemically but I think about myself um, <clears throat> in what I can do as an individual to combat them and going back a little bit to the idea of the internship I think about um, my own experience of having like an internship that my mother uh, you know she made a few phone calls I grew up. Uh, I grew up in a in a very clear, like, um, uh, very clear middle class uh, family, and so any sort of connections that who you know sort of thing was very very important uh, in terms mm-hmm. of moving ahead in my in my family. Although what although your- we didn't have tons of money, we they they knew enough about how the other class lived to be able to try and capitalize on on things for me and my brother for instance so when i think about for my kids um of course like and like you've written in your book like you wrote in your book you know a parent is going to want to do anything that they can to to give their children a leg up but what can we do individually as people to make sure that we actually are leveling the playing field for everybody else does that Mm -hmm. mean like we don't make those calls to get the get that internship to that law office for our kid you know what i mean yeah well, yeah, it does mean that, oh. um, and that's I think where that's where the rubber starts to hit the road. You know, it's very easy to talk theoretically about these things, um, and it's going to be very different for different different people. Uh, but let's take, you know, I think there are various versions of this, from the radical to the moderate, um, if you like. But yeah, I think that if there is, um, I mean, the what you want is to create a social norm where you wouldn't think of making that call. Hmm. Because you know that you're that the person you call is going to say, "Come on, really? Seriously, you you, you you want me you want me to rig this for you? You know, I've got a whole bunch of kids um, from really poor backgrounds um, who are going to benefit way more from it than your kid is, 
So I'm really sorry, but no, and you really shouldn't have made that call. You know, slightly sort of you feel a little bit ashamed of yourself for making that call. Um, um, I, I have a comparison which might be completely off base. You guys want to hear it? Yeah. You know yeah. how like the knock against uh, the U.S. and other developed nations for um, carbon emissions and climate change ca- uh, you know, and carbon emission caps and all that stuff. The knock on it from the developing world is like you guys fucked us up to already to get where you are. Now that you're arrived, you're kind of like all hoity-toity and pulling up the ladder and saying, "Don't pollute, don't use coal." But like that's the only energy we have. Like. What a privileged position to say, don't use these tools. You've already yeah. arrived. It's like white people's problems. Yeah. White yeah. people's problems, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, yeah. And I do think race is, race is an, uh, an interesting – race cuts across this in a way that's quite interesting, not least because actually black kids born into the top 20% are, don't stay there. They're, if anything, downwardly mobile. Hmm. So dream, successful dream hoarding defined as keeping your kids in the top 20% appears to be a white phenomenon that's super interesting to know and fucked up yeah i'm 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 black so <laughs> no i think it might change the mind. I think it changes, like, yeah, yeah, oh. <laughs> so it's fine i mean honestly what if, I what if your kids are half white i'm just kidding go, go, go i'm sorry right, so guess, it's a little bit longer like what do you do does this apply equally across racial lines and actually Given those statistics, actually, and given that there's this risk of downward mobility for black kids especially, and black boys above all, um, it's actually quite hard to say that it's exactly the same um, and that the kind of the, the, you can apply the same moral calculus to these decisions uh, as if race didn't matter. And now you hope you, I hope you get to a point where I can say just as unequivocally to a black upper-middle-class person, yeah, that's dream hoarding, you shouldn't do it, as I could to a white. But I can't right now because the, 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 the evidence points to the fact that the risks of downward mobility are much higher. And so black upper middle class parents are right to be more worried about how their kids are going to fare in the world than a white middle, upper middle class parent is. There are those very big differences. And we're about to publish on this, actually. Uh, on, hmm. in this statistical risk of upward and downward mobility. You but heard it here. I was going to say, so it was, okay for my, it was okay for my mom to make well, that I, call. To, to, I mean, I actually think that that gets to the, to. Uh, I don't know if you've, you see it this way, but it's like, um, basically, it's like, are you creating a more just and equitable world? If the answer is yes, but the means by which you're doing it is dream hoarding, that seems like it passes a moral smell test. If it's, uh, you're dream hoarding and you're creating more inequality than it's no, right? Like, it's a- yeah, yeah. But and, and the difficult thing is that like it might cut. The answer to that is going to different differ for different groups, particularly in this case by race and kind of income. Yeah, it's not um, a blanket more so, so, yeah, Give another example, right? So actually, it helps to be personal. And I am personal. Yeah, it's the personal. You know, basically, the whole book is an attempt to make inequality a personal issue, right. and to some extent, a kind of personally uncomfortable issue almost regardless of where you end up. So my eldest son called, asked me if I would help him get an internship at my publishing at my publishing company. And I said, no, I won't. Hmm. You're on your own. Now, that's a difficult decision for any kind of parent to make. Well, yeah. I thought quite well <laughs> wow, about yeah. it. Um, um, because, you know, you might say, well, what kind of, you know, so one reaction is, what the hell kind of father are you? You know, you denied him that opportunity that he could otherwise have had. He ended up getting the internship anyway, actually, without my help. In a way, the story has less bite than it would otherwise do. Um, but I said no. And the reason I said no is because I actually think, and I explained it, I said, it's unfair. I, they publish me. So I'm one of their authors. If I call them and say, will you give my son an internship? They'll probably say yes, because they want to keep me happy. 
and keep me and keep me promising. So they're going to give this upper middle class white boy um, who has huge advantages anyway. They're going to give him yet another leg up, and I don't think it's fair that because you were just by the pure chance born to someone who has the chance to open that door for you, I'm going to say, uh, and so the answer is going to be no. And I hope that they hire, that they take on as an intern somebody who will benefit significantly more from it, because the truth is he would have benefited, if at all, marginally from it. But he, ended up, but he ended up with, at the internship. Yeah. He got it. He applied to that any help, and he got it anyway. And it was only after he was there, and they started talking about my book in the meeting, that he then had to sort of sheepishly say, well, actually, that's my father. That's my dad. But I mean, just <laughs> to put... like, Really? Why didn't you tell us? <laughs> well, two things. I was about to say, did you read his... Did he say, did you read my dad's book? Yeah. That's why I didn't tell you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it'd be nice if you read any of my books. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I think, yeah, to, like, on a, I have two things to say. Anthony, our producer, remind me if I forget the second one. Um, the first one is, you know, I think that's so hard for parents because I'm thinking about, like, your son Otis, right? Mm-hmm. Or my son Achilles. It's like if he asks for help, it all of a sudden becomes like a systemic inequality thing versus, like, a dad, do you love me? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, it's like, exactly. man, that's not even rubber hitting the road. It's like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, the road no, hitting your yeah, face. Yeah, no, I was about to say, I mean, it becomes straight up a, like, paternal yeah. sort of thing. Like, it, almost like a paternal reaction. Of course, you want to do anything you can for them, but... And they really, want, really and they expect you, they, I mean, you train your kid their whole lives that you're going to do things for them to help them because you love them. And then they're asking you to do something to help them, and you're like, well, no, because systemic inequality. Yeah, but I guess what Richard yeah. is saying, like... Also, at the same time, like if, as in in a weird way, in a weird way, maybe it's connected to like teach a man to fish, kind of like if you teach, if you if you are actually raising your son to actually go after the things that he wants, and he's going to get them on on his own, based yeah. on based on the yeah. ethic that you taught that you taught him that ethic, as opposed to you know. Yeah, I mean it's hard, but I at guess. the same time, it's I mean, like well, is it bad how do you teach a man to fish in a dog eat dog world? How do you teach a dog <laughs> well, to uh, fish in a dog <laughs> eat dog world? This is very, this is very confusing now because you've got men and fish and dogs. Yes, and it's um, raining cats. And dogs. Yeah, well, you know, you know, they're all kind of like best friends. So. Wait, wait. Okay, yeah. the other thing I wanted to say is right. Your argument for not giving your son an upper middle class white child a leg up through your own personal connections at your publishing house internship is because you didn't want an you didn't want him to get an advantage because he was accidentally born into the family he's born into but he's also accidentally born systemically white and upper middle class right so it's like this goes back to what we started at the top is like you're ameliorating some of the marginal inequalities but the structural inequalities still exist i mean like you're not absolving anyone that's the right that's the right I think that's exactly right and a very, very deep criticism of my whole um, argument. And so um, the first point to say is that this is all about where we draw lines. And so just, you know, that this idea that it's like, right, this is like, are you good? Do, do you love me, Dad, versus systemic inequality, right? And telling a kid, well, you know, I'm not going to do that because of the systemic inequality, right? Uh, it's a very, very hard kind of conversation to have. Um, uh, but there is a line. You know, would I bribed someone um you know it's what about it's not an internship but it's a job right uh, mm-hmm. would i call someone and to say hey what are you going to give him a job would i say to this person hey if you give him a job i'll give you a contract would i say how about if i give you this lucrative freelance gig come do stuff for me and maybe in exchange you'll 
do something for my son because I've got the money and power to do that. Well, how, how do we feel about that? You know, at what point, where do you, where do you hit a line which says, you know what? Actually, that's just wrong. It's um, also the, so funny and, because... And we, all, we all have those lines, and my hope is that just by having the... Co- and the lines, by the way, are drawn differently by different people in different places at different times, yeah. right? So as right. I said, yes. legacy preferences was unthinkable in the 19th century. Now it's common. It was common in the 19th century in the UK. Now it's unthinkable. So norms do change in places, and so I'm trying to shift norms. And most importantly, get people just to reflect on like, where's the line, because in the end, the big goal here is reduce systemic inequality. I have no chance of persuading people to do the things that I need them to do to reduce systemic inequalities if I can't even convince them that these relatively marginal things are things they should be willing to do. You know, so it's almost like a litmus test, right? If I can't get people to yeah. agree to just do these tiny things, I've got no chance of getting them to agree to these big things. I think another thing about your book was so um, challenging and uh, probably didn't make you very popular among your friend set is <laughs> you're not really setting up the traditional 1% versus 99%. You're implicating a lot more people in this issue. The top 20% mm-hmm. represents, as you, I think, wrote yeah. pretty much the entire professional class. Yeah, I mean, basically... Yeah. basically Everyone you would have at a dinner yeah, party. Yeah. You're basically saying nobody is safe. Anybody who... Um, who is reading to Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Anybody who's reading it, because anybody... Yeah. I, think, I think you state in the book, anybody who is reading that book more than likely is in the upper middle class. Yeah. Well, uh, because like, I know the demographics of this podcast, anyone who's listening yeah. to this podcast. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know the demographics of the book, but that's right. It didn't. It didn't. Um, everyone <laughs> systematically places themselves in the wrong position, and I think that the the politics of this kind of the moment we're in at the moment it, is that that people don't just think of the top one percent pulling away, uh, and it, and if they do, they're kind of just empirically wrong. Although the top one percent doing very well, um, this it's much more structural than that. It's much more, and it's the professional classes. Most it's college graduates, mostly married to other college graduates. They own their own homes. They're making comfortable, you know, six-figure, six-figure income. The families are reasonably stable. They are living an increasingly different kind of life to everybody else. And that gap, that class gap, is the one I'm really interested in, which cannot be reduced to this top 1% thing. And most importantly, the idea of, oh, it's just the top 1%, it's the beauty press, it's the rich or whatever, just gets every, it just lets everybody else off the hook. And I think that that has been profoundly damaging. The constant chase to just say it's just this tiny phrase, it's the 1%, it's the 0.1%, it's the 0.1%, it's just the really, 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 really rich. Right. They're the problem of inequality. It's just empirically wrong and morally very troubling because it just means a whole bunch of us get to let ourselves off the hook and pretend that we're just ordinary, struggling, middle-class Americans. And it's just those plutocrats at the top of the problem, and that's just wrong. And it won't create the space that we need for the kind of big changes that I think we need. So in order to, can I ask one question, in order to make those changes, is the idea to think or to draw a sort of ethical line in terms of, um, in terms of whatever decisions you make, you need to think about them for the community of people as opposed to just yourself, or maybe not even your community if you live within a upper middle class community, but like the community at large. Yeah, it's it's an attempt to try and a very modest attempt to try and do exactly what you've just said, which is try and shift our sort of moral ecology to recognise that there are always going to be trade-offs between what is the most optimal thing for me to do right now for myself, my family, my kids, and what is the the collective thing that we all need to be agreeing to to make kind of society better, and to recognise that sometimes making a fairer society and a better society requires some of us to 
especially those in positions of power, authority, and affluence, to lose a little bit, to give up a little bit. The one analogy I don't feel works, I've never tried this analogy before, but it's a bit like you know, traffic flow when you're moving in traffic, right? The individually rational thing to do is to swing out, right, into, into the heavy traffic and get yourself out, jam out, they hit the horn, it's, you know, but you get out and you get away, and maybe you get home three minutes earlier. But the result is there's more traffic. Whereas if you just let someone go, everybody flows a little bit, everyone just gives a little bit, you sacrifice a little bit in the short term, it means that all the traffic flows better. And in the long run, we all benefit from that. So this idea that you have a fairer society without sacrificing anything seems to me to be for the best. Well, Richard Reeves, author of Dream Hoarders, How the American Upper Middle Class is Leaving Everyone Else in the Dust, Why That is a Problem and What to Do About It, you know... We have many interesting uh, interviews, but this was modally super interesting. <laughs> the modally best one. Yeah, modally, yeah, yeah. This modally fits will, into like my favorite of conversations. Actually, uh, I will take it. I will take the mode rather than the median. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Have a good Thank day. You. And really enjoy your book. Seriously, great speaking to you guys. Take care. Bye bye. I mean, I think talking to Richard was interesting because I, I always, I grew up, I think upper middle class, and I still think I'm upper middle class, and I still spend like I'm upper middle class. And yeah, expect that's that, the biggest part of it. You still spend like you're upper middle class. And I'm not. Yeah. But then you zoom out a little bit, and I still am. But <laughs> I'm struggling. You know what I mean? I'm still yeah. living paycheck to paycheck. Right. I don't know. What about you? I mean, where did you fall when you were growing up? What was your outlook I, I would say that i grew up like solidly middle class solidly yeah. middle class like uh like my background was um where'd uh, you grow up well i grew up in decatur georgia which for for those who don't know decatur is like in atlanta sometimes i mention decatur and people are like huh they look at me you know you know people i work in chicago a lot of people are like decatur illinois I'm like no no <laughs> um no decatur georgia and decatur is like is in atlanta this is so you could just say Atlanta. I could just say Atlanta, but if you're from Decatur, you say Decatur. Okay, gotcha. You know? <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, you got to be proud of that. You got to yeah. be proud of that. I really. Uh, but yes, I could say Atlanta. The Atlanta area. I went to school in Atlanta. I actually went to this school called the the Paideia School, which was um, a private school that was built upon a um, educational theory about <clears throat> create how you create a commute the best community to uh to foster the best sort of education for people and it's like the whole idea is that you do create a community kind of like each one teach one sort of thing kids are um have a say in their actual education and uh meaning like you know there's monday morning meetings and people can uh, uh people can actually um, uh, try and get certain courses in certain and right. in, in, in certain curriculums at the school. Like we actually created a Black History course when I was in school. Yeah, you know what I mean. And found a teacher who like who would sponsor, it, and then they found a teacher who would teach it. And like there's so many different uh, aspects to that. But that was uh, um, just basically hippie private school that okay, I went okay. to. Yeah. Anyway, get back, yeah. Yeah. Getting back, getting, back, getting back to the point. Getting back to the point. I went to this really rich, like, uh, really rich high school 
uh, and I was a solidly middle class, uh, came from a solidly middle class background uh, as a black dad, kid. Your dad is a preacher. My dad, yes, he's, he was a pastor. Um, <clears throat> how he made his money, uh, how he made his money was uh, working for the government. He was a um, criminal investigator for uh, the Department of Health and Human Services and did some work with the FBI and stuff like that. Uh, and then my mother worked in the education field. Um, but my parents also got divorced. My dad actually remarried. Um, but there was, so long and short of it is like, we lived definitely from paycheck to paycheck, Mm -hmm. definitely from paycheck to paycheck. And yet, and still my family, you know, made the sacrifices and did the certain things and, um, tried to get, you know, got me a scholarship to go to an institution, to go to this private school that costs a lot of money. And, uh, something that I was like saying to you at some point in time was that um, I literally got to see to some extent um, how both the poor side lived and the rich side lived because I went to this school where I had uh, peers and classmates who had tons of money upper middle class and very very upper class Um, and then was in the Decatur school system for some period of time and had there were kids from the projects who my peers from the projects who were bust in and definitely they did not have money did not have money at all when you were growing up did you feel like there was going to be either a a steady state you'd stay at the same economic sort of like class you were were you going to go up were you going to go down did you think about that at all you know, I always assumed that I would go up. And, you know, I think some of that honestly has to do with, like, being from the black community. We're very, when it comes to, like, money sort of things, we're to some extent very aspirational. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, like, we never look bummy. Like, you can't, you know how, like, uh, there's that thing of, like, you know, uh, my white peers, white boys, try to like scuff. They get a new pair of shoes and they try to scuff yeah, them up. Yeah. Like, you got like black boys, like black boys. Yeah. We got to keep our stuff like crispy yeah. and fresh. Like one of the things you never do, and I tell this to my son: never step on a black man's shoes. <laughs> never. Like that is like a criminal Whereas offense. What I say to my white son is: look, just offer your shoes to be stepped on. Then you look <laughs> yeah, like exactly. you're. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you know, I I never. Um, uh, I, I I should say I assumed I assumed that that my economic situation was going to improve to some extent, but um, <clears throat> yeah I never thought that it was going to necessarily dip. However, I grew up in a way where I was prepared. I was prepared, and perhaps to a detriment, um, like develop the develop the mechanisms to actually live from paycheck to paycheck right you know what i mean so like i didn't really learn to save Mm. and i didn't learn to invest from like my parents you know what i mean even even you know i think even if they did that to some extent at some point in time that's not information that they disseminated to me yeah you know what i mean it was just go get that money yeah it's interesting i'm i'm thinking back on the things that richard talks about exclusionary zoning um uh internships and legacy college admissions which i think represent like a part but not the entirety of how you perpetuate um opportunity hoarding mm-hmm. and I, I think that though i didn't benefit from those specific you know like those like 
I'm, maybe I did benefit from exclusionary zoning, but yeah. to my the best of my memory, I didn't I didn't have a legacy admission, and I didn't use my parents' connections for internships. But I used a whole range of other sort of like inherited entitled entitlement and privilege in terms of like. So I got an internship at Harper's Magazine, which is how I began my career because I was the friends of the daughter of a family friend of Samantha Power. Yeah. Um, the writer, the later ambassador, and like, I helped her on her book, and then like Harper's folks were like impressed that I knew Samantha, and then like that ushered in this this whole world opened up for, for yeah. me from that. But I think about my sons, I think about my family, and I think about what my general level of like where I think they'll be when I project my level of optimism, if you can call optimism of what I think their financial security will be like in the future. Mm -hmm. And I know that even though I make more money than I know, I make more money than my mom ever made. Um, I don't know about my dad, but like, um, I, I do live paycheck to paycheck for sure. Yeah. I live paycheck behind like you right. see my Amex bill. And Jaquette, our next guest, knows that because she's my financial coach, so she'll tell you. <laughs> I owe a lot of money. Um, but I don't think that they'll have the same opportunity that I'll have. And that's what's so interesting about Richard's whole thing is, like, the one half of my parental brain is thinking, I want to give my kids any sort of leg up I can because I'm not – I can't. I haven't saved any money for them. I don't yeah. know how they're going to go to college. I don't know any of that. And then the other thing, which he says, which is also true, is that if we want a more fair, equitable, and just society, it's like those – that's not what I should do. Right. You have to actively level the playing field. Yes, exactly. But, like, but how do you do that? Like, all you, all you ever want to do is, all you ever want to do is give your, give your progeny a leg up. Yeah, like, but it, that's it, fucked up like, because that yeah. is exactly furthering systemic inequality. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Anyway, um, wait, before we talk to Jaquette, mm -hmm. uh, well, you don't live in Decatur anymore. No, I don't live in Decatur anymore. I, li I live in Bed-Stuy. And I what do you Brooklyn. do? This is our big thing. You know, the, this is a Who is Paz segment. Yeah, so okay. This is, if this is the Who is Paz. Um, uh, short, to, for, to, short for? Short uh, for Pastel Pringle. To know me is to love me. I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. Um, <laughs> I hope that's the case. But um, but I, I am a uh, an artist. Uh, I Actor, playwright, uh, musician, producer. Um, I work for a work with a company called uh, Q Brothers Collective. They're based in Chicago, but I live here in Brooklyn. I'm the, I'm the Brooklynite member. Um, we are best known for making hip hop musicals, uh, although that's not the only thing that we do. Uh, but I'm also uh, an actor uh, here in New York, and as well as a uh, voice music actor. Producer. Yes, and yes, actually, notably for notably for. Grand Theft Auto 4. <laughs> yeah, anybody who plays that, you know, I still get weird, like, <laughs> random messages on Facebook from people who, like, from people who loved Playboy X. That was the name of my character. Yeah. And the, the, the common thing that they are most proud of is that they killed me. Oh. So I don't know how to Love I your work, to, killed uh, yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> and you're but, a dad. Yes, and I'm dad. Too. I was also, I, I was also in the most recent one, uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I did actually three different characters in there. Did that pay the bills? Um, well, you know, it's really interesting. Some it bills. Well, no, it pays your bills for uh, it pays your bills for the time that you're getting paid to do it, but you don't get residuals. 
So, I mean, that's something that's still messed up about that part of that industry. You the know, video game industry. Yeah, yeah. So, it's very important to have people like uh, Jacquette who can tell you what to do with your money while you're, while you're getting it. While you, you know have I mean? it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. We'll take a break and we'll be right back with uh, Jacquette. When I separated from my wife, I realized I wasn't going to have a financial backstop and there was no breathing room. In addition, I was going to have a lot more financial commitment, and it scared the bejesus out of me. So this guy, Ty, at work, suggested that I talk to his financial coach. I'd never even thought of going to a financial coach because the whole idea of financial literacy fills me with agita and scares me. Uh, but I met this lady, Jaquette Timmons. Um, she's great. She has a book called Financial Intimacy, which seems to be, I could have used when I was still married, uh, but it's never too late to learn. And she's been really helping me get a handle on my whole financial landscape, which I'll just out and say it is not great. Um, but Jaquette is, and she's joining us now. Yeah. Maybe she can help me. Okay. Jaquette. Yes. I know you because you're my financial coach. <laughs> yes. Uh, and the first time we met was in Park Slope maybe like a couple of weeks ago. Yes. And as I mentioned at the time, uh, you know, I'm having financial issues. Like, I'm, I'm not in a good place. And I have child support and I have rent and I have crazy credit card debt and things just aren't looking <laughs> so good for me. Uh and I didn't know it at the time, although now I do know that you're also an author of Financial Intimacy. Yes. Um, which is all about navigating your relationship with your finances with a mate. Yes. Uh, I am mateless, but Paz has a mate. Oh yeah. When you say when you say financial intimacy, I kind of had the I kind of had the impulse to go, oh yeah. <laughs> Is that part of the title? And there's Very so white much boys. behind that. Yeah. <laughs> Financial intimacy. <laughs> Here on a quiet storm. Yes. <laughs> um, How to pay your bills on time. Or, or just at all. Yeah. yeah just, no. just let them pile up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just, like, just note my bills. Like, oh, hi. I see you. I see you there. Anyway, um, you came at the... Uh, at the recommendation of a co-worker, Ty Trimble, because um, I think you also worked with him. Mm -hmm. And I think it would just be for all of our listeners and for you, Paz, yeah. and me, I think it's a good conversation to have just about how to stop being broke all the time. One of the things yeah. our previous guest, uh, Richard Reeves, talked about, I was kind of bitching about living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. He said something really interesting. It's like, that's actually meaningless to him because depends on what your expenditures are like he needs to know more to have that be meaningful but i thought the idea of paycheck to paycheck might be a good place to start for us sure and so actually before we get to there i just want to anchor the conversation so that listeners can really understand what i do and why i do it and why i think it's important in terms of my particular focus so yes functionally i work as a financial coach but the way that i describe myself is as a financial behaviorist and the reason i i do that is a couple. If you think about it, regardless of where you fall on the income spectrum or on the wealth spectrum, very broadly, there are four things that you can do with your money. Earn it, save it, invest it, and spend it. That's true for everybody. What's also true is the science of math. 
two plus two is gonna always equal four. So if that's the case, how is it then that two people that are similarly educated, uh, similarly skilled, working in a similar profession, earning similar salaries, living in the same region of the country, so they're their compensation probably is on par. How do you explain their different financial experiences and their financial results? And for me, the way that you explain that is by way of their behavior and their choices and their motivation behind that. So when we get to the conversation around paycheck to paycheck, a couple of things come up for me. One, is it true? Mm -hmm. And I know that that may seem like a really, really odd question to lead with, but is it true that you really do indeed have more expenses going out than money coming in, or is it really a cash flow issue? Is it that the timing of when the money is coming in is not in sync with when your demands are needed in terms of your financial responsibilities? Hmm. So it could See, be even that, that is yeah. mind blowing. To me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I mean, yeah, I know, I know, exactly, exactly. <clears throat> yeah, take us to school. Yeah, keep going, keep going. <laughs> also, I'm like I'm nodding, like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Please continue. Yeah, so yeah, it, okay. it too, could too many be. bells are ringing right now. Well, tell me about your bells. Uh, well, uh, the, the cash flow thing was, mm -hmm. that that really that really hit me um, hard in terms of uh, I I am also uh, basically a freelancer. I do not um, work in a way that I can always expect money to come yes. at a specific time exactly. when i do know the money that is coming right. like it's already basically spent, spent right. but yes yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah exactly but the thing is i can't account for i can't account for all the other times when i get hit up for that money Yes. You know, and that's when it really becomes a cash flow. And issue. that's when you really feel broke. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Because you're you feel like the the demands that are being um well, some are obligations, and so they, they are what they are. But you feel like what's being asked of you is more than you can actually handle. Mm -hmm. And it could just simply be that you either need to get a little bit more coming in in terms of your pipeline, or you need to readjust when your obligations are due so that they perhaps are more even throughout the month. Oh, man. Oh, go on. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. Exactly. This is, this is sweet, hard music. <laughs> So that's uh, that's one aspect of it. The other... Um, the first one is, is it true? Is, yeah, yeah, the first right. question is, is it true? Yeah. So you may, you know, ask that question and come to the conclusion that, yes, it is true. Well, so then that means that you've got to ask different questions and... Um, they're, they are a bit harder. And they are harder because that means that you have to make some trade-offs. And we're not always comfortable with the trade-offs that are in front of us that we need to make. But one of the ways that I, I, I try to make it easier for people is to invite them to take a look at their banking statements and their credit card statements and to go through, whether you print it out or some way, shape, or another, highlighted um, if you do a PDF. Or and, Excel spreadsheet. Or Excel spreadsheet, I, yes. Really yeah, he's really good I at spreadsheets. I'm really, I'm really into spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. love it. <laughs> exactly. Don't don't let anybody else tell you differently. This you know, guy, okay. this guy's a master with spreadsheets. Oh, he totally I is. Say, I've seen it. Yeah. When I figured out how to make conditional formatting from one page, like to feed into the cell of another sheet, it, yes. it, it, like, it, it, I, it just changed your world. It kind of did. Though. I was so so excited. <laughs> I was really into it. Anyway, go on. <laughs> I, however, am very terrible at spreadsheets. Well, you should I'll have him over. set I can it up teach for you. you. Yeah, cool. Set it up. Hey, if you it. have him set it up for you, then you just have to enter the information. All it just, right. voila, magic. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so what you want to do, however you capture your data, print it out, 
online PDF or Excel spreadsheet. Go through and identify the individual line items and, you know, the ones that made you happy. Either label them H for happy or give them a color code. Oh, Mary Kondo, that shit. Hmm. Mary, Mary, exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Got it. I'm sorry. Um, uh, can, can, oh, she's the organizer lady. Marie the, Kondo. Oh, oh. Yeah, like does this give up? you joy? Oh, like you yeah. go around yeah. and yeah. does yeah, this yeah, give you yeah. joy? Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's one. That's one data point. The other is to go through and look at the items that were mandatory. So label that M. Like they are what they are. And then the third uh, category are the things that perhaps you purchased and initially they made you happy, but now you regret them, and that's an R oh, for regret. Word. Oh, okay. And like buyer's remorse sort of things? Exactly. Okay. Like exactly. every $18 salad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sometimes it's really, really good and nutritious for no. you, and that's what your body needed. And then other times it's like, really? Yeah. Yeah. So go through and then tally up really the number of R's that you have. Oh. Because if you if you look at the number of R's, it makes it easier to cut those things out, hmm. either for a short period of time or for an indefinite period of time. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's, it cuts so quickly though to like a financial conversation to like an emotional yeah, an uh, emotional therapy conversation. Yeah, it no, it that, is. That, that, Money is this, always emotional. Yeah, I was about yeah. to say, yeah. it, I, it, just I had the exact same reaction. It feels like, that feels like hard emotional work actually. It is. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Sure. Um, and actually, this is before we get uh, back to uh, financial intimacy. Oh, um, yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you, Barry. Um, before we get back to that, actually, I even have, I want to tack on the idea of um, the issue of saving, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when you are, when you're working in, uh, you know, the freelance sort of gig economy, uh, mm-hmm. as, as it were. That is one of my biggest issues i actually do not have too much of an issue with living uh within or below my means i think that that was just because of training Mm -hmm. because of one how i was brought up and two because of like the chosen field that i that i went in i literally like my very first job out of college i earned 50 dollars a week um, and so like you learn how to like, yes. you know, you know, make a dollar out of 15 cents. Right. You learn how to like, yeah, you know, yes. yeah. How to squeeze. Yes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> s- s- you know, squeeze it to that There's ego. Brim. Yeah. That one <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So like, I mean, I got good training in that way. Mm-hmm. I got good training in that way. However, what it did not do is give me the skills to figure out how to save. I feel like the only way that I save is when I get like my big payday and I don't have too many of those calendar days coming up where the money is going to go out like take the chunk of money and throw it in the you know throw right. it in and the, then forget yeah. about right. it yeah exactly and right. then forget about it and right. it can't be touched right you know but it, that doesn't feel like an entirely like sustainable way to actually save and then also like uh, continue the growth of it so is there like when, what do you suggest because because you know I could go according to percentages, like percentage uh, a percentage of every single paycheck I get. But again, that messes with sometimes if it's a small paycheck, then that messes with yeah. uh, the when the bills are due. You know what I mean? So I, I I pretty much only save when I know I get a huge abundance, kind of. And it does, but that doesn't feel like the right 
way to do it? So I think it's just like um, exercise. I want to use that as an example. So I'm I'm an avid runner. I could run all day, every day, ran today. Like I just run all year round outside. Nice, nice. I'm with you. I'm in your tribe. Yeah. (laughs) What I'm not good at, though, is strength training, right? And so someone said, just do 10 push-ups every day because I just, I'm like, those things are boring to me. And they're like, well, you're not going to get the same high from running or from doing, you know, strength training and push-ups that you do from running. So just do 10 every day. I'm like, okay, I can do that. I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> that was two days ago. Exactly. It yeah. literally was. However, my point there being is um, you just have to do it. So whether it's $5, whether it's $10, you have just got to put that dollar amount away. And maybe it's not based upon a percentage, but it's a flat dollar amount. And it's like a, it's the, a it's a gesture of saving that's important, and that kind of like, like muscular, muscle. yeah, memory. It's it's, it's, it's oh, a yeah. muscle, right? And then and then I would say if you decide that the total, let's say the total dollar amount is ten, I would say you put five in that account that you can tap into because you know stuff happens, mm-hmm. but then have another where you put the other five in an account that you don't touch, mm. like no matter what. Because here's what typically happens. You have the intent of saving, but the money comes in, the bills go out, and you leave saving as the last thing to do. And then what happens is if you keep doing that as your pattern, three months go by, six months go by, nine months go by, and a year goes by, and you haven't met whatever was your savings goal because you prioritized everything else over the savings. Mm. Whereas if you include saving as a bill, and it's up at the top, mm. and you have more months where you're like, oh, I don't have enough left over, I don't have enough left over, it invites you to have a different kind of conversation with yourself about oh. what needs to change. Hmm. I just feel like I'm constantly triaging. Like there's no moment where I'm not spending like intense emotional and intellectual energy on just worrying about my money or lack of money. Mm-hmm. Like it takes up, we had talked about this the other day mm-hmm. um, in terms of like emotional overhead for like freelance work. Yes. Like how much effort and time do you spend to get that one paycheck from that magazine versus if you have a steady gig, right? you, you don't take up that real estate. I feel like generally I take up, there's so much of my emotional real estate is taken up with like just not knowing. Like I just don't have a system. I, and I'm like, like yeah, yeah I, like, you don't for, have a system for yeah. what though. It's just like a blank terror, and like total disorganization. When I think about my financial life, it's like uh, I I have some idea that like some money is going to come in, and I have these obligations, and I know that I'm getting other money in, and I know I but it's not it's not organized, and yet I and I think because it's not organized I have so much anxiety around it and you know to bring it back to kids it's like and in my particular case I have child support so I have something I need to pay every month which I'm getting used to now and and the lead into this was um that I realized that I I, it wasn't an option it's not an option for me any longer not to have my shit together like I, I can't fall behind on that. And right. I want to have a happy life. Right. And like something needed to change. Right. So if you mind, I just want to uh, also now tilt to uh, your idea of like financial intimacy. Yes. yes. 
Yeah, yeah. Can you? Because okay, so I have a partner, yeah. and uh, we keep our finances largely separate. Mm-hmm. That is, that has very much everything to do with just the fact that she makes, um, she typically makes much more than I do. There may have been one year in the time that we've been together where I made more or equal. Mm -hmm. to the amount that she did so we um you know we have like maybe one um um joint account Mm -hmm. but we do not pay our bills from that or anything like that she pays these bills i pay those bills we just make sure all that stuff is together she is incredibly good with her finances my job is just to like not slip up basically yeah seriously (laughs) seriously yeah yeah and and again part of the reason why my job is to not slip up is because i my my actual income fluctuates largely from year to year right um so i gave you all that primer but i really want to hear what this financial intimacy Mm -hmm. thing is about and how i can get more of that in my life so we can just make sweet love financially (laughs) (laughs) I love that voice. Um, okay, so a couple of things. Number one, uh, I don't remember the stat any longer, but research, there is research out there that proves that more than likely you will end up being with someone who's the financial opposite of you. So if you tend to yes. be a saver, you'll end up with someone that's a spender. If you are a spender, you'll end up with someone that's a saver. Wow. And on the off chance that you were both the same, perhaps it's God's way of having a sense of humor, one of you will scale back. So if both of you are intense savers, one of you will scale back. If one of you, uh, if both of you are, uh, you know, spenders, mm-hmm. one of you will scale just back as rain. a way somebody's of, gonna just somebody has to go back to a light drizzle. Yeah, well, yeah. as a way of just, I guess, preserving the unit, right? Right, right, right. Um, But so for me, the whole thing about financial intimacy is using money as a tool to deepen your, because I actually think of money as a communication tool, and. If you use it as a communication tool, you'll have conversations that you might not have had before, hmm. and that will, and by that nature, deepen your intimacy with what one another. What do you another. mean use it as a conversation tool? Because most times when we're talking about money, we're not just talking about money. We're talking about people's values, their right. beliefs, their expectations. We're talking about, you know, what did they see growing up? How are they reacting to that? Are they continuing what they saw in their families? Um, are they doing the opposite? Or are they, do they think that they're doing the opposite and they're actually doing the exact same thing? So it's really a window into getting to know someone Um, through a lens that you might not know. And that means being vulnerable. It means exposing some things about how you think, how you feel, your habits, your behaviors. And that can get really tricky for folks. But to to the the financial intimacy with your partner, Mm -hmm. the sound, please. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) So you work with a lot of partners. What are some of the common roadblocks or problems that you, you come across, especially for the nature of the podcast uh, with parents? Yeah, so one is um, expecting that someone is going to approach money exactly how you do. So here's a really good example. Um, One client, they lived together for four years before they got married, and while they were living together, they um, split everything 50-50, and they had separate accounts. And just as a pause, I, I, I feel like you do whatever works best for you. So some couples have yours, mine, and ours. Some couples do everything joint. Whatever works best for you. 
However, in this particular instance, they had separate accounts, but they split everything 50-50. They get married. And I did say they lived together for four years, right? Okay. So now they get married. After they get married, she is expecting that they will now have joint accounts and that things will now, now be done proportionally. Was this not discussed? Ooh. That's that's why I'm saying yeah, I did so, say they lived such a together weird for four years. Thing yeah. to not right? <laughs> and, and and for and and why did she have that um, expectation? She had that expectation because growing up, her father was an entrepreneur, her mother was a stay-at-home mom, but her mother handled all of the finances. So for her, that was her frame of reference, and she thought that they only did it differently because they weren't married, and that once they got married, uh, things would uh, change. He, on the other hand, grew up with divorced parents, both of whom were professionals. So he never saw them uh, talk about money. He never saw them negotiate anything. And so everything was separate. So for him, he was like, we've been doing this for four years, and this worked perfectly fine. Why in the world would we change it? She thought it would be proportional yeah. in the sense that if she made 25%, she would contribute exactly. 25% of the bills. Exactly. And right. he thought 50-50. Right. Yeah, I think I had a similar situation <laughs> where, like, my partner grew up with actually very financially, like, responsible parents, and I think that they actually taught her that. My parents did not, and mm -hmm. I grew up with divorced parents, mm -hmm. uh, and I never actually saw them, like, dealing mm -hmm. with, like, bills. If anything, whenever there were moments that we fell on hard times, uh, what I saw was, like, how to survive despite that, but not, not like, how to, not, not how to... Uh, uh, create the system with which to not fall behind right, right. you know how I mean? to cope but not how to right. drive yeah yeah exactly right. and so and so actually when i'm thinking about it connecting all the all the dots you know coming out of college and i mentioned the fact that i like had a job where uh like for eight or nine months where i only got paid 50 bucks a week um coming out of that like i actually felt very proud of myself for being able to do that um but that still didn't make up for the fact that once I did start making money, like basically it's like I knew how to I knew how to like live like like I was making 200 bucks when I was making 50 bucks a week. But then <laughs> right. once I got 200 bucks, I knew how to live like I was making 500 bucks right. as opposed to 200. <laughs> right. Once I got 500, I live like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah but yeah. I didn't actually learn any real financial like. Right. Yeah. Tools. Basically. Right. And for me, it was like. Um, I grew up with divorced parents too, and my my ex wife didn't. And I always thought, okay, you p meet your family obligation X amount, and then whatever else is left over is yours. <laughs> right. And Anna's, which now I subscribe to belatedly, but it's like um, you have the family. The family is the the main planet right. in the solar system. Right. And that's where the money goes, and anything, and that's the center of gravity. Right. Like, and that, and to to talk a little bit about how the emotional logic informs financial decisions. My emotional logic, which was problematic in other ways too, is that I was still as an individual, the center of gravity. Right. And that had all sorts of financial implications, right. which were only latent because as you, right. you alluded to, many couples just don't talk. It's a weird conversation to have and not sexy and not romantic <laughs> and like falls under the falls under the like you are my um business partner and yeah there's roommate no barry, there's no barry white voice for <laughs> no. Yeah. no but you can there's get no... more barry white when things are more financially harmonic right yeah. it's true. <laughs> oh, yeah. or harmonious 
couples not communicating clearly and explicitly about their financial outlooks. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's kind of like entering into a relationship, but also I would say, if not remedied, a long-standing um, issue which just crops up over and over again if that's not rendered explicit. Yeah, and I think the other thing though is that we we also have this. I'm not quite sure where it stems from, but this idea that you only have a conversation about money once, mm. it's one and done, and you're good. Yeah. And that doesn't really quite match up to the dynamics of how life works. Things change. Um, yeah, and certainly not how partnership works. It, exactly. And, so and if, families uh, if, yeah. evolve. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Everything evolves. You evolve. The relationship evolves. Your goals evolve. Your priorities evolve. Um Maybe you, you know, last year you didn't have children. This year you have children, so you've got to change that. Like, things shift, but people don't necessarily shift, A, their expectations around money in -hmm. accordance to those things, and they also don't keep up with having ongoing conversations. So don't treat it as one and done, but think of it as your money conversation is one that you're going to be having forever. In much the same way that I I remind people that your relationship with money is one of the longest ones you'll ever have. You can be married to whomever you're married to for 80 years and your relationship with money will still be your longest relationship. Do you suggest people like talk about it in Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4, or like schedule it like do you have a- I, I i suggest people have money dates actually and and depending upon where you are um in in that money space if you will i would suggest to some folks that you have a conversation once a week and it doesn't have to be more than 30 minutes it can just be a check-in for others they can do it once a month and for even yeah. others they can do it once a quarter i was gonna say what does that look like now that actually sound that's starting to feel romantic right there well no. you know yeah, one no, of one no, of my no, no, no. <laughs> One of, one of my clients, nope. what I suggested to them is that they have a conversation each week over um, a glass of wine. Still not romantic. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I might get, I might get that wine thrown in my face at the end of the, at the, end of the date. Well, that's it for us at the Fatherly Podcast. Uh, this episode was produced by Anthony Roman and me, Joshua David Stein. I'd like to thank our co-host, Postel Pringle, our executive producer, Andrew Berman, our engineer, Diko Shatorma at Atlantic Sound Studios. I hope you like this podcast. If you did, rate it, review it. If you don't, don't do those things. Um, subscribe at the iHeartRadio app or wherever you subscribe to your podcast. And we'll see you next week. Bye.